Well, beloved, open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 18. We'll continue our study this morning looking at verses 28 to 38. But I would also like you to open to Psalm 1. We'll read first the account or which we'll look at this morning in John. And I'm going to have you jump to Psalm chapter 1 because that will be pretty much an introductory chapter. John 18, verse 28. We come now to this historical narrative. The arrest of Jesus. He's already stood before the religious hypocrites of the day. He's been ushered off now to Pilate. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own account? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Pilate answered, what is truth? Holy Father, I pray now in desperate need your presence and your power that your word would find its place in the heart of those who sit here dead dead on the inside that your spirit by grace would save them from the pit of hell. The deceived, those so familiar with the truth, but yet are perishing. While at the same time I pray, Holy Spirit, that your word would sanctify your saved people, your church, and that we would come to a much grander understanding of your passion, Jesus, 
the cross. For it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Now, before we look at this historical narrative, I want to back into our study by way of Psalm 1. Now, take a look at it. We opened with this reading this morning. The word of God through the psalmist reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Oh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, and in whatever she does, he, she, prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 offers two ways in life, friends. Just two. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the saved and the way of the lost. The way of the eternally secure in the way of the deceived. Notice the righteous person is described in verse 1 in the negative by what he does not do. In verse 2, he's described in the positive by what he does do. And then in verse 3, he's described metaphorically by what he is like. Notice he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of mockers. And in stark contrast, notice the wicked man, he is grinding to a halt. Notice, he goes from walking to standing to sitting. This is very interesting. You see what he does, the wicked, the lost, they begin by walking in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, they begin to adopt in their minds the advice of the world, the perspective, the values, and the worldview of the ungodly begins in the mind. And if he does this long enough, he sinks then to the next level, and then he begins to stand in the way of sinners. Now, in English, this is a bad translation because it gives the wrong impression. It sounds like it reads that he stands in the path of sinners that are coming towards him or coming in his way. That's not the idea. Because in Hebrew, standing in someone's way means to stand in their shoes, to walk in their steps, to do as they do, to adopt the lifestyles, the habits, the patterns, and the conduct of the wicked. He then is now likely to descend into the place of sitting in the seat of scoffers. So not only does he now participate in that which is godless, he begins to mock those who don't follow his wicked ways. You ever been to a party? Walking with Christ? 
You don't want to partake in someone sure to say what? Come on, goody two-shoes? Or something like that? He mocks you. Now, it's at this point that someone has well said that a person here in this position receives his master's degree in worthlessness and his doctorate in damnation. That's good. It's good. But, my friends, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, you might expect, we might expect verse 2 to read like a, a, a contrasting parallelism. We might expect it to read, but, you know, blessed rather is the man who walks in the counsel of the righteous, who stands in the way of the obedient, and who sits in the seat of the graceful. But instead, there's only one positive principle. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. He hashes over, he goes over in his mind night and day. You see, when one delights in the word of God, my friends, he or she is delighting in truth. Constantly meditating on it. This truth, my friends, is rooted and grounded in the heart of God's people. It abides there. It lives there. By God's grace. And only by God's grace. It's in God's truth, then, that one learns good counsel. He receives good counsel. While his conduct, his behavior, his attitudes are shaped by that truth, you see. And in a response, the man or woman of God nurtures the grace and the gratitude of praise and thanksgiving. The Lord knows this man. And this man knows the Lord. But you see... Simply knowing the truth of Scripture does not save anyone. Memorizing Scripture saves no one. Even the devils memorize Scripture. Amen? Satan tempted the Lord Jesus Christ with the Word of God out of context. People stood before the incarnate Son of God... People, my friends, stood before the embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ, and that was not enough to save the majority of those who saw him this close, two feet away. They're in hell. They walked away. You see, his truth has a saving effect only when it abides in a believer. Jesus said to his disciples, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, guaranteed will what? It will be done for you. We studied that a number of months ago. That's what he said to his disciples. This, this mob of religious hypocrites that is handing Jesus over to Pilate, which we're about to study, that very same group 
Jesus said this. But you do not have his word abiding in you. Whose word? The Father's. Because whom he sent, him, Jesus, you do not believe. Now, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. No one knew the scriptures more thoroughly than the scribes and the Pharisees. God's word, his truth, was not abiding in them. Only when his words, when his truth take root and bear fruit of faith and obedience do we know that someone is saved. It is through faith and obedience that true faith is, is revealed. Believing and, and, and abiding are intimately connecting, intimately connected through the teaching of Jesus Christ. If you hear this teaching today that says you can, any, many people are believers, but they don't abide, they don't obey, but they're still believers, that is unscriptural, my friends. Do not fall into that heresy. The one who abides is the one who truly believes according to Jesus, meaning that the word is at home in you. In other words, there's a place for it. It belongs there. It fits there. In John eight thirty seven, Jesus again confronts the religious leaders of the day. He said, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. His word didn't fit in the hearts of the religious leaders because it didn't belong there. It was never at home there. You're trying to kill me so my word has no home there. My word's not in you. Today, my friends, many hear the word of God and they want to kill the conscious conviction of the words of Jesus Christ. That is no different than wanting to kill Jesus himself at all. Jesus has no home there. As John Piper put it, the word is like a foreigner who enters a racist society and everyone stares at it saying, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And therefore, the word leaves. Just like the first Three soils that Jesus talked about. The seed was good because the seed's the word of God and the word is always good, but the soil is corrupt. And the first three soils appeared to be something for a bit, but revealed false conversion. Those who are in Christ, in other words, those who abide in Christ, His Word, the Word is rooted in them. It's at home. And where there's no room for the truth of Scripture, there's no place for Jesus Christ, regardless of what you say. Because He's the truth. Jesus said, I am the way. Come on, let's just say it together just for fun. The truth and the life. And let you know I got a little good hearted fun in me. 
Last time we witnessed the rejection of the truth of the high priest, Caiaphas, and the rejection of the truth that stood before Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law. Now, John does not describe the early... Back to John now. John does not describe the early morning session of the council that Jesus stood before Caiaphas. Because Caiaphas put Jesus on oath to declare whether or not he was the son of God. And Jesus responded, according to the other gospel accounts, it is as you said. Caiaphas tears his garment and he cries out what? Blasphemy! And they march Jesus to Pilate. So and again, again here now we're in the midst of studying a historical narrative in which we meet now Pontius Pilate for the next couple of weeks. And we come now to Pilate's searching question. What is truth? And that question is found only here in John's Gospel. The account of Pilate is recorded in all four Gospels. But here, what is truth? Only found in John's Gospel. Why? Because John's Gospel focuses on the embodiment of truth. The author of truth. The divinity of Jesus, the God-man. Truth. Now, the irony here is that the incarnate Son of God, the creator of the universe, is standing before fallen men as though he were on trial. But by whose standard does anyone judge the greatness of the deity of Jesus Christ? That's my question. By what standard could anyone possibly have the goal to judge Jesus Christ? Because people do it today. And there's so many who attempt to bring their wacky ideology to the table in determining what truth is while they redefine who Jesus is. I read a story about two men who walked into a French art museum. And one of the concierges of the museum, he was a man who had a great appreciation for art, he observed two men staring at a great masterpiece off to the side. One turned to the other and said, nah, I don't think much of that painting. The concierge, feeling indebted to reply to the man's statement, said to him, Dear sir, if I may interrupt, that painting is not on trial. You are. The quality of that painting has already been assessed and approved, and you only demonstrate the frailty of your measuring capability by your judgment. You see, my friends, Christ has been approved by God the Father. It's man who's on trial. If you don't know Christ today, you're on trial today, my friend. And I've been praying all week that God will have you here, that the Holy Spirit will grip your heart, and He will be cause of you being born again before we leave here this morning. Because without Him, you can't be born again. So I pray for the mercy of your soul. Especially if you sit here under the teaching week after week after week and you haven't repented of your sin and come to Christ. Because I care for your soul. The evidence is in. The case is closed. 
time, history, and eternity validate and make certain that every claim Jesus made, every word that he spoke is the very word of God. The words of Jesus are the words of God. John 3.34 says this, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. When Jesus sneezed, God sneezed. Every time Jesus opened his mouth, God spoke. His words are always divine. When the apostles speak in the office of apostle, the New Testament writings, they speak the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. You read 1 Timothy, you're reading the words of Jesus Christ. You read John's Gospel, you're reading the words of Jesus Christ. You read Genesis, you read Exodus, you read Ecclesiastes, you are reading the words of Jesus Christ, period. Every human being is in one of two places, my friends. He or she either delights in the truth of Jesus Christ or stands in the path of sinners. That's it. That's it. So let's look at the narrative, now that I've encouraged you. Let's look at the narrative as the truth of God is spoken by the God of truth. And that's the title of the message this morning. The truth of God is spoken by God, the God of truth. Now, here it is, Pilate. Pilate's on trial here, friends. Pilate is a man torn between two worlds, the material world and the spiritual world. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're torn between the material and the spiritual. Perhaps you love this world. Perhaps you love your sin, but you know Jesus is the only way and you don't want to go to hell. If you're not surrendered to Jesus Christ, you stand in the middle, which means you stand in the path of sinners. Here you have Jesus, the King of Kings, across from Pilate. You have Pilate, you have Jesus, the King of Kings, who's in absolute, complete control of the spiritual world, stands trial in the material world right here for which he equally rules and reigns. Notice how Jesus is in control. Outline for you in your bulletin. Jesus, the very embodiment of truth, is in, control, in total control of, number one, the kind of trial he would stand. Number two, the kind of death that he would face. Number three, the kind of realm he rules. And fourthly, the kind of kingdom that he established. Let's look at the kind of trial he would stand. Verse 28. And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, although Jewish law stated that no trial was to be held at night, Annas and Caiaphas, if you were with us two weeks ago, they break all Jewish prudence here. And they try Jesus in the darkest hours of the night, probably around 3 a.m. They take him from Annas to Caiaphas, 
And then they likely from that point hold them in a, in a cell until daybreak. And then they bring them to Pilate at about 6 a.m. Now, it was common for the Roman governors of the day to begin their day at the break of dawn because they only worked until about 11 or 12. Here he is at the Praetorium. This is the governor's residence. Now, Pilate wasn't normally headquartered here. He was normally headquartered 65 miles north of Jerusalem in Caesarea on the Mediterranean. If you were in Israel with us back in November, we toured Caesarea. Beautiful. It's beautiful now in ruins. Can't imagine what it was like then. And Herod the Great built the very place in which Pilate normally lived. They even have Pilate's um, little tombstone there his name is inscribed upon it. Now, what would happen is during these great high feast days, the Jews would come, hundreds of thousands of them, from throughout all the lands, and they would enter into the city of Jerusalem. So what Rome would do was beef up their military might in case of an uprising of the people. I mean, every time they would gather for these high feast days, they would think about their freedom, think about their freedom, think about their freedom... So there's fear of an uprising. But notice the religious hypocrisy at work here. Notice, they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, in order to eat the Passover meal, Jews had to be ceremonially clean. Purged of uncleanness. Passover was a feast of unleavened bread. So, therefore, every house of every Jew had to be free of leaven. Leaven represents evil. The Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and they use that illustration for sin within the church. If you have one member living in rebellious sin, it will have, if you don't deal with it, if you don't address it, if you don't discipline that individual, eventually that sin will infect the whole body. That's the idea. Now, Pilate's place in their minds, because he was a Gentile, would likely have had leaven in it, deeming them unclean until evening. So they would have had to purify themselves in order to partake of the Passover meal. That's one possibility. But even so, there was nothing written in the Word of God that commanded a Jew not to enter into a Gentile household. There are, however, some extra-biblical writings that, that record that Jews thought Gentiles to abort their babies and either bury them under their homes or flush them down the drainage system of the day. And if that were the case, in their minds, they would come in contact with a dead body and they would be considered unclean for seven days. Whatever the reason, they were not going to enter into this Gentile's house and become defiled and not be able to partake of the glorious Passover celebration. Hypocrisy. I mean, this is religious hypocrisy. It's at worst. Think about it. In order not to defile themselves so that they can partake of this religious feast later this day, they're marching Jesus the fulfillment of everything that the Passover represents. They're marching him to Pilate, and then they remain outside, not to become defiled. 
So from the human side, the human dynamic, what it is is religious hypocrisy that's driving Jesus to the cross. While they refused to enter Pilate's headquarters, they were doing everything to murder their promised Messiah. But adhering to their rituals. You see the hypocrisy here? This is so extreme, it's sickening. But this is not unlike the multitudes today who attend church. They partake a communion, stand, sit, kneel, recite a prayer, recite a creed, sing the songs, yet inside, they're dead. They're dead to the truth. They love rituals, they love standing, they love kneeling, they love sitting, they love reciting the, the, the creeds, but they don't know Christ. They hate Christ. You know, the most stinging words Jesus ever spoke was to religious leaders. Listen to this. Tender Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering, entering in to go in. This is all in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour, devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and and faithfulness. But these are the things... You should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is love. That's right. And Jesus is just also. Amen? Just, righteous, loving, and always right. Religious hypocrisy, living a double life, has a very unique effect in silencing your conscience when necessary. Why? Because you begin to substitute rituals for reality. (laughs) You can come to church, you can do all this religious stuff, all these rituals, and deny the reality of the rituals. You substitute ceremony for substance, or you substitute showing up to church for true Christianity today. So, due to their ritualistic paranoia, they remain outside of this Gentile praetorium. Verse 29, Therefore, because of their hypocrisy of not coming in, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, 
don't think that Pilate was for one minute surprised here in this early, of this early morning meeting. Here he is at the break of dawn coming out. He knows this. They have Jesus because what Pilate is very aware of is that one week prior to this day, the Jews lined the streets as Jesus rode in on a donkey's colt and they were hailing him what? Hosanna! Save now! He knows about Jesus single-handedly cleansing the temple of the money changers, turning those tables upside down. Jesus going, the scripture says, he made a cord of whips at the beginning of his ministry and he chased the money changers and the religious hypocrites out with the whip along with the animals. And then at the end of his ministry, just days prior to where we sit now, he did it again. The night before this moment, a cohort of soldiers had been released to the religious Hypocrites. Guess who would have had to release them? A cohort, 600 Roman soldiers. It would have been Pilate that would have to have given the okay for those 600 to be released. This was no surprise to Pilate. Pilate's not stupid, nor is he ignorant of the tactics of these religious leaders. He knows exactly what they want him to do. They want him to kill Jesus for them. Okay, you see this? Pilate also knew, the scripture says, in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, it says, Pilate knew that the chief priests had handed him over to him because of this, because of envy. Envy. Pilate also knows that they assume that he will give them what they want. But as governor, he's thinking, you know, look, you don't assume with me. (laughs) I'm in charge here. Right? So needless to say, Pilate's not asking because of ignorance. He's asking on account of his ego. (laughs) This is a prideful man. He wants these Jews to recognize his authority, so he asks as though he doesn't know. What's the charge? Hey, what's all this about anyway, right? So now what do you have here? You have religious hypocrisy met with prideful political power. There is no worse recipe than that. Religious hypocrisy and corrupt political power together. And then standing in the middle of both of groups, Pilate and his soldiers and the religious hypocrites is the creator of the universe, God incarnate, who's being accused by sinful fallen men. So who's going to outwit who? Look at verse 30. They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Notice they don't answer the question. How many people do you run into that never, they have questions, right? But they don't want to know the answer. You give them a question, they don't answer the question. They run off some rabbit trail. See, they don't answer the question because there's no evidence that can be brought against the Lord Jesus Christ here. None whatsoever. Notice, though, their answer is given in the form of reasoning from a self-righteous kind of piety. Notice, what they're saying here is this. We're the religious elite, and if we say that this man is an evildoer, this man is an evildoer. 
Verse 31. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law then. So what do the Jews do? We're not permitted to put anyone to death. Although they attempted to do so many times. Remember? They attempted to pick up stones to crush his skull, but it was not yet his hour. In Nazareth, in Nazareth, they attempted to drag him out and throw him over the precipice, but he escaped because it was not yet his hour. This is his hour. He comes freely. You take him and judge him, Pilate says. Oh, but, 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 but we're not able to, Pilate. We don't have that authority. So Pilate in his political pride, he could sneer at this point. Uh-huh. That's right. Who does have the authority? I do, don't I? So who's going to prevail? Who's going who's to win the battle? The religious corrupt power or the politically corrupt power? Who's going to win? Answer? Answer? Neither one of them. Because once again, we see the greater dynamic that's at work here, beloved. Jesus was in control of the kind of trial that he would face. He had to be. It had to be a trial under Roman authority. Very important. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said this, Behold to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. He said he'd be betrayed by who? Judas? Who does Judas betray him to? The chief priest, the religious hierarchy of the day, and they will condemn him to death and they'll deliver him to the Gentiles, to Pilate. Here he stands. Now, although they had no lawful charge whatsoever in bringing against Jesus to Pilate, They have to make something up. So what do they say? He said he's a king. Yeah, he said he's a king. That gets Pilate's attention. So he had to stand this kind of civil trial in order to move us to our next point. He had to stand this civil trial under Pilate in order to die a particular kind of death. Point two. The kind of death he would face. Verse 32. Verse 31, they said, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. My friends, divine sovereignty is what we see at work here. Divine sovereignty. These sinners are controlling nothing. Amen? Not one aspect of this event are they in control of. You know how much we control in our lives? Nothing. We may think we control our lives. You may think you have the control to take your hand from your nose and reach outward. But that could all change on your way home today. You have, you take breath naturally ever since you've walked in here. Amen? You don't have to consciously think about breathing. Amen? Could end just like that. Because he holds your breath in his hand. He's in control. 
He had to die a particular kind of death. Back in John 3, verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the servant of the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have what? Eternal life. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now, it's interesting that Jewish writings record that 40 years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Rome had taken away the right of capital punishment from Israel. So we know that the temple was destroyed and God judged Israel under the hand of Rome in 70 AD. So 70, take away 40, brings us to what? The time of Christ's ministry. This is amazing. Had not the right been taken away, how would Jesus have been put to death? By way of stoning. That was the prescribed method for blasphemy. In the Bible, Jesus claimed to be God as early as John 5. And in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, The Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. To make yourself equal with God is to declare that you are God. That's a blasphemous statement. They could have stoned him. But again, they couldn't because it was not yet his hour. A Roman cross was his hour. So since it had been prophesied that Jesus would have to be lifted up in death, it would be by Roman capital punishment that he would have to die. The way of crucifixion. That's the kind of death that he would die. Well, someone might say, well, what about that stoning of Stephen in chapter 7? Remember that? They stoned Stephen, the one who's professing Jesus Christ, proclaiming Jesus Christ, preaching Jesus Christ, telling sinners to repent. They stoned him, but that was not an approved manner of capital punishment. What that was was an exhibition of mob assault. Remember what happened? The scripture says that they were so outraged that they gnashed their teeth at Stephen and they crushed him to death by stoning him. And Stephen cried out, forgive him. He saw his Lord in glory. So here again we see the sovereign rule of God, as always, moving in and out of human history. So the Lord here providentially secures the rule of Rome, many years prior to this, and they happen to have adopted crucifixion as their preferred method of execution in capital cases. Coincidence or God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty. And then just at the right time, uh, he eliminates Israel's right to exercise capital punishment. Rome controls it. So the religious and political powers, they're not the ones that were in place. They're not in control. God was in control. Friends, anyone who is in a position of authority and leadership over nations throughout this world, throughout all time, including this very day, when you turn on CNN at night, do you stress? When you see the havoc that goes on, do you see the the crime? Do you see the wickedness? I say this, fret not. 
because Christ is on the throne. And there's not one man in office throughout history that is not there because of the sovereign preordained plan of God himself. Can you sleep rest rest well at night? Think on those things. He's in control. So not only did scripture ordain and declare that Jesus would die, but scripture also prescribed the manner in which he would die. Is not the accuracy of scripture mind-boggling? It's amazing. The truth of scripture, the clarity of scripture, the fulfillment of scripture, time and time again. And I have this question for you. Is this how you see the passion of Jesus Christ? This was his passion, the cross. This is known as Passion Week here in the text, the cross. Many of you went to see the movie The Passion. Christ's passion was the cross. He set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem. He came, he said, no man takes my life, but I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This is his passion. Do you see that he was in control of his passion? Jesus was never a helpless victim, ever. He's in sovereign control here. So it wasn't Pilate that was in control. It wasn't Caiaphas. It wasn't Annas. It wasn't the entire religious sect of hypocrites. It wasn't Judas. Jesus controls this entire ordeal. Now, granted, every one of these individuals is responsible for their wickedness. Each one of their actions was was motivated, motivated by the wickedness of their own hearts. They're in hell today unless any of them repented. They are suffering in hell today because not necessarily of what they did, but because they rejected the one they did it to. These men weren't even secondary causes to this situation. This was the preordained and glorious plan of Almighty God. This was not a dreadful catastrophic event. That's why we call it good what? Friday. It's good Friday. It's good because it was preordained by God and Jesus came to fulfill every aspect of it. What we have here is the father and son working in tandem, friends, according to their preordained plan for our good and his glory. Are you thankful for the cross? No, seriously, friends, Christians, I'm talking to you believers. Are you thankful for the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf? You are a blood-bought sinner redeemed by what he did here. He orchestrated this thing and he laid it out, he planned it, and he walked through it faithfully for you if you're in Christ. He used religious hypocrisy. He he used corrupt political powers in order to bring about the salvation of fallen sinful mankind in order to redeem his elect. Rest in that. He does, however, employ the wrath and the hate of men to bring him glory in the end. Through death, where? On a cross. That was the kind of death he had to die. Pilate now leaves the Jews. He goes back inside. And this is where we witness his encounter with Jesus. Now we move to the kind of realm for which he rules. Verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Okay, Pilate now has his soldiers bring Jesus to him. Here he is, a middle-aged man, Pilate. 
facing the Son of God, facing His Creator. And on each side of Pilate, or on each side of Jesus probably, you have two, at least, soldiers, spears in hand, standing at attention. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you king of the Jews? I mean, why would he ask this? Reason? Answer? Because that's what he had been told. As I said earlier, the Jews know that Pilate will never execute Jesus because of blasphemy. He was a natural man, and the natural man cannot what? Understand the things of God. He could care less about the things of God. If this guy claims to be God, I don't care about that. Try him according to your law. But what the Jews knew is that any political threat would gain the attention of Pilate. Especially during the high feast days, when hundreds of thousands of Jews were in the city. Now, at this time, Pilate already had one anti-government radical on his hands by the name of what? Barabbas. And we'll, we'll look at him next week. And we'll do more background on Pilate as well. I wanted to focus on Christ here and truth this morning. Now, if you think about it, if Pilate would have thought about this just for a moment, you know, I mean, after all, would the Jews really have turned Jesus over to Pilate if he were an insurrectionist? If he were a rebel, a revolutionary? I mean, the Jews hated Rome. They hated the Romans. They dreamed of ways for Judea to be free once again from the bondage of Rome. And if Jesus posed a threat to, to Rome, the last thing that, that, that they would have done is handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? You is emphatic. So he's probably saying this with, with contempt, a, a bit of sarcasm, but I think it's also mixed with a bit of awe. Think about it. Jesus is standing there. He's already a bloody pulp. He's already been beaten. He's already been punched. They put a blindfold on him with Caiaphas and they punched him in the face and said, prophesy now, prophet, who's striking you? He would have been all swollen, standing there. You? A king? I mean, he's likely thinking, who is this strange character? I heard that he heals the sick. I hear that he raises the dead. And he seems anything but hostile and rebellious to our system. You, a king. Jesus turns the tables now, friends. And Jesus begins to address Pilate's conscience. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So Jesus says essentially here, I'm no revolutionary rebel and you know it. Do you really want to know the answer to your question, Pilate? Or are you merely parroting my accusers? You know, many people, as I said, they raise questions they don't want the answers to. Some guy came in here couple weeks ago I had a meeting with him and he believed some heretical view of Christianity I no sooner walked through the doors having had lunch with one of the men in the church as soon as I laid eyes on his eyes I knew he wanted to fight 
I could see it. Two hours later, that's all it was. Wasted. Unless the divine work of the Holy Spirit penetrates that man's heart to change his twisted thinking, you see. He didn't want answers to the questions that he raised. He raised questions for the sake of a fight. That's it. So at this point, the tables are turned. Jesus is now the interrogator. You see, friends, Jesus interrogates the hearts of men. Jesus gets far beyond the superficial facade. Matthew fifteen nineteen says this. Mark this down. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Out of the heart proceed murders. Out of the heart proceed adulteries. Out of the heart proceed fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. You see, adultery begins in our thoughts. Sex outside of marriage, fornication, begins in our thoughts. Stealing something begins in our thoughts. Adultery begins in the heart. And this is where Jesus goes. See, he's the truth. That's where he hits. He's hitting, he's hitting Pilate in his heart. The truth. So feeling now the authoritative pressure and the convicting presence of Jesus, can you imagine, friends, can you imagine standing as a pilot, an unbeliever? Think back when you were an unbeliever. Unless you've been a believer since you were a kid, and I praise God for the testimony of his grace in your life. Think back when you were an unbeliever. Imagine yourself as pilot, accusing Jesus, trying to get out from under the conviction of Christ. His authority and his presence is so convicting. You remember trying to run? <laughs> you remember trying to get away? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? They handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? What's the real issue here? And Jesus goes on now. You do not want to miss this. Jesus responds by defining two features that classify the essence of the kingdom for which he Rules. Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Notice he begins by stating it in the negative. My kingdom is not of this world. Which is to say my kingdom is not out of this world. Literally, it's not from here. It's not from this place. My my kingdom does not emerge from this fallen human system. If my kingdom were from here, my servants would fight. And I'll tell you what, if they would fight, I wouldn't certainly be standing here before you. Because I would win. But my kingdom is not of this realm. In other words, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is from another place altogether, is what Jesus says here. Now notice, very important. Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world. What he does not say is that my kingdom is not in this world. Very important distinction. 
He's not saying, once again, that his kingdom is not active in the world or that his kingdom has nothing to do with the world. Some want to interpret this in a way that supports their view of disengaging from culture. They want to use this to support their view that they can go isolate themselves, move to the hills of Missouri, and stop paying taxes. Start a commune. Tax-free commune. Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to the Lord what's the Lord's. So he's not saying that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Nor is he speaking about the sphere or the scope of the kingdom, but simply he's speaking about the origination of his kingdom. It did not originate from this earth. So the first feature in defining the essence of his kingdom is that God is the author of it. Now he's speaking this to a spiritually dead man, Pilate. The second feature in defining the essence of his kingdom is its kind. Notice the kind of kingdom he established. And here's the answer. The kind of kingdom he established is a kingdom based on the truth of God. God is the author of that kingdom. It was not established here. It was established in heaven. And it's based on the truth of its author. All right? Verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you're a king then. See how he tries to pull back to the natural here? Okay, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this, now get this, man, don't miss this, this is rich. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears what? My voice. My voice. Pilate couldn't handle this kind of language. So you're a king then? Jesus replies by stating that he himself is not from this world. For this I've come into the world. He came from heaven, the place from which his kingdom originated. And he entered time and space, and he entered time and space to testify of the truth. Whose truth? The truth of Almighty God. Don't forget this. As God in a body. He came to declare the truth of Almighty God as God in a human body. So not only is his kingdom established in the truth, but he himself is that truth. He's the complete and perfect expression, my friends, of the one true living God. There's only one, one way, my friends, to know what God is like. You must look at Jesus, for there is no other way. If you want to know the truth about yourself, look, you know, so many people today, so many people today, because they listen to the cycle babble of the world, they're in their teens, they're in their 20s, I'm just trying to find myself. Let me help you. You want to know who you are? Look at Jesus Christ. You want to know your sin? Look at Jesus Christ. You want to know about eternal life? Look at Jesus Christ. You want to know about God himself? You must look to Christ. You must devote yourself and surrender your life to Christ in order order to understand God. 
You must embrace him. In other words, you must repent before the author and the essence of truth, Jesus Christ. He is the expressed image of God, my friends. He said to Philip in John 14, remember? Philip, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. For I am my Father, we are what? We are one. We are one. So Jesus himself bears perfect witness of the very truth of God as the one who, again, he is the truth. The truth declared in the Gospels is not a thing. Truth is not a thing. Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. And people who truly want to know the truth, so many people say, I'm seeking for truth. If you're truly seeking for truth this morning, you will bow to Jesus Christ. Because if you're truly seeking for truth, that means he's drawing you to truth. And if he's drawing to you to truth because you're seeking truth, he planted that in you in the first place. And he'll bring you to himself and you will bow because those who want to know him truly, they will indeed find him. Everything else is a charade. And you make a mockery of God. And God will not be what? He will not be mocked. But many, just like Pilate, my friends, will for the rest of their lives ask, what is truth? Notice, verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? New insight for you, just in case. Postmodernism? Postmodernism? Isn't so postmodern, is it? We live in a postmodern age and people are saying, well, yeah, there's truth, but we can't know it. Therefore, what is truth? And you got a bunch of spineless church leaders who say, okay, we live in this postmodern society and people are searching for the truth. We can't know the truth. And who are we to say that what Jesus meant by what he said? So let's start a postmodern church. And then we'll strike up a conversation. Well, what do you think truth is, Sally? Here, this is probably too authoritative for you. Let's get rid of the pulpit and I'll come down there and sit on a stool with you all. What do you think truth is, brother? Oh, that's pretty good insight. Wrong! He's the truth. And His truth must be heralded. Jesus Christ must be preached because sinners are dead. They have no place in their heart for Him. They're on their way to hell. They must be born again and you can't make yourself born again. It takes the supernatural work of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. People are only born again by the Word of God. Amen? This is passionate love for you all. I listen to adults who have teenage kids. Well, Johnny's 15 now and he doesn't want to go to church. So? Well, I don't think we should force him against his will. Does he live in your house? Well, yeah. Get him to church. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Man alive. Pilate stood two feet from the embodiment of truth and he turned and he walked away. Many to this day, Remain at arm's length from Jesus all their lives to walk away from truth right into damnation. I fear for kids who grew up going to church all their life. That's a true Bible preaching church and they're dead in their sin. I fear for them because they're so hard. Hard. 
They're just like Pilate. Why? Because just like Pilate, the word is like a foreigner who enters the racist society of their heart and everyone in his heart says, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. So the truth walks away. Never to return. You know what Jesus does according to Scripture? He'll turn sinners over to themselves. He will leave them to themselves. If you're left alone by the hand of God, you'll never be able to come to faith. That's the fear. Romans 1, go read it. Romans 1, verse 18 and on, go read it. He will turn a sinner to themselves. They'll walk away, and he'll walk away from them. Preach the gospel. Stand face to face. To stand face to face under this kind of teaching, let me tell you, you stand face to face under this kind of teaching, true biblical teaching, and walk away every, every week, it is no different from walking away from Jesus Christ just as Pilate did this day. No difference. Two great lessons to be learned for us this morning, beloved. And let me tell you something. If you're a Christian here this morning, I say beloved because you are the beloved of the Lord's. You've been bought at a great, great price. Messages like this should not discourage you. They should encourage you because of the passion of Jesus Christ, because of the price that was paid for you. If you're in Christ, his spirit bears witness with your spirit. You know you're in Christ if you're in Christ. If you have a life and you're living it and the truth of Christ does not abide in your heart, you have every reason to fear that you're not his. You repent today. Two lessons to be learned. Number one, Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, and this is for believers. Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, was in complete control of his arrest, of his trial, of his death, of his sentence on a Roman cross. This was his passion preordained for you. Rejoice. You are a blood bought saint cloaked in the righteous robes of your savior forever lesson number two for anyone who's not in Christ or for people who say with their mouth that they're in Christ and the truth does not abide in them it's this there's no Neutral stance to be taken with Jesus Christ. You are either for him or you are against him. There's no in-between. Next time we're going to see that Pilate wanted to release Jesus. But he had no heart for the truth. The truth was not in his heart. He recognized the facts, but he failed to bow in submission to his creator. You can recognize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You can recognize that he was righteous, that he's innocent. He's the God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of glory, the resurrected one who sits at the right hand of the Father and enter in into eternal damnation. Truth was foreign to the heart of Pilate. I pray that truth is not foreign to your heart. No one can stand in the place of neutrality when it comes to Jesus. 
You're in one of two places. You're either for him or against him. So I ask you this question. Are you one who delights in the law of the Lord, the word of God? And are you like a tree? Are you like that tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season? Your leaf does not wither. And whatever you do prospers for the glory of God? Or do you walk in the counsel of the wicked? Do you walk in the steps of sinners? Do you sit in the seat of scoffers this morning? That's the question. But you show up at church like a Pharisee. Like a Judas. Standing, sitting, singing. And you're dead. To you I say this. This could be the last chance you ever get. Repent of your sin. Recognize that you're lost. Recognize that you're helpless. Repent. Turn from serving yourself. And turn to Christ. Embrace him. Serve him. And you shall be saved. If he's doing a work in you. Living out rituals. Or you forsake the reality of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 of Psalm 1 describes you. You're the wicked. You're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. If you're in Christ, you'll stand in the judgment because you'll be clothed in righteousness. Christ's righteousness. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will, what? Perish. Pilate perished. Most likely. Judas, Judas, perished. Scribes and the Pharisees have a condemnation as hell and hell that is greater than many others because they knew more. So beloved, as purposeful as Christ was in the passion, never forget the only way to know him more deeply is his word. The truth, amen? May it be rooted in your hearts. May it be rooted in my heart. Our hearts together as the body of Christ, the beloved, blood-bought children of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's stand and let's pray. Our mighty Father, we're... We are helpless in understanding uh, all that is here without the illuminating um, presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. And we begin there by thanking you that um, you pulled us from the depths of hell. You revealed to us our complete spiritual deadness. You granted us by grace uh, an understanding that we are helpless. You granted us the faith to respond to the gospel call. 
And in our sanctification by your grace, according to your word, you have brought us to greater understanding of the price that was paid when you laid down your life in our place. God, may we be people who meditate on your word, who love the word, who are like that tree planted by the streams of water, feeding on the truth because Jesus is the truth. We need truth. We need to be reminded of truth. We need to be reminded of what we've been rescued from, eternal damnation. And many need to be reminded that they can't play with God. They can't say with their mouth one thing and live another way. God, help anyone like that here today. Bring them to the place of repentance and belief. Grant them saving faith, we pray. And Lord, help us by grace, saved by the blood of Christ, to, to walk in a manner, Lord, that is so humble, knowing that we could fall at any moment, not to lose salvation, but to fall in patterns of sin that totally and completely contrary to the truth that we know and that we've been saved by. Guard us and protect us and guide us and direct us for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may souls be saved this morning, I pray, for His glory and their good. Amen.